Hello, Jim Marty here from sunny Longmont, Colorado, and I've got my partners here with me, Rob Hunt and Larry Mishkin. How are you doing, guys? Jim, always a pleasure to see you, Rob. Welcome back for another show. The Deadhead Cannabis Show is always a pleasure going forward with both of you and another great guest we have today, which we'll get to in a minute. Chicago is cold and snowy exactly like it's supposed to be this time of year. The polar vortex or whatever you want to call it is kicked in, which gives us all a good excuse to stay indoors, listen to a lot of Grateful Dead and smoke a lot of cannabis. Rob, you're the smart one in the group because you're living out where it's nice and warm. So how are things out there? Yeah, greetings from uh, sunny San Diego. This is Rob Hunt speaking from Linnea Holdings. And as always, San Diego is, is warm and pleasant, but in the last two weeks, I've barely made it outside because the cannabis industry is just moving at such a furious pace right now that I'm spending you know 15 hours a day locked in my office, and maybe I make it between my, my back door and my beer fridge out in the deck and uh, come back in with a cold one every night after uh, work is over. But that's about as much as I've done besides uh, the random mountain bike ride here and there. Gotcha. So... Without any further ado, we are uh, very lucky today uh, to have another fine guest on our show, Mark Ross. Mark is a, I would say he would say by trade, an environmental attorney, but uh, in talking with him, we've discovered that it's uh, really oh so much more that he brings to the table, in addition to being a big fan uh, of the Grateful Dead as well. And uh, for those listeners that uh, bear with us and uh, listen to what Mark has to say, at the end, uh, we are going to be diving into a discussion of uh, Eyes of the World, which Mark will be an eager participant I know Jim has some comments lined up, as do both Rob and I, so that should be a lot of fun. We'll get to that in a few minutes. In the meantime, Mark, welcome to our show. We're glad you could be with us today. Thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here today. That's fun. It's the best part about this show is we've had an opportunity to really meet uh, and get to know a lot of people in the cannabis world, and uh, you're another one of them. Give our listeners uh, 30 seconds of background on yourself, what you do by way of being an environmental attorney, and uh, what your connection is uh, to the cannabis industry. Sure. So I, like you said, I'm an environmental attorney. I've been an environmental attorney for over 25 years, worked in the public sector as an environmental prosecutor, the private sector in a large law firm and for a Fortune 100 in-house counsel. And then I created a, a national environmental advocacy nonprofit that works with the music industry before turning my attention to cannabis and not as an environmental attorney, but I wanted to do the, the non-profity stuff without being a full-time attorney anymore. So that led me to corporate social responsibility, where I get to work on things like social impact and community outreach and sustainability and all the things that at this point in my career really give me lots of fulfillment. That's wonderful. I like that, Jim, because as you and I have talked about, this is just another situation where cannabis provides someone to be able to spin out of what they've been doing and find another niche for their skills and go from there. Yes, one of the things I noticed on your bio, Mark, is that you were a speaker at the uh, Bonnaroo Music Festival? Yeah, for 10 years I created an on-stage interview program with artists and activists where I got to interview some of my heroes like Bonnie Raitt and Bob Weir and Michael Franti and Warren Haynes and John Bell from Widespread Panic. And I got to talk to them, frankly, about not about music so much, although we did touch on music, but more about their their activism, their philanthropy. With John Bell, he just wanted to talk about solar power. Yeah, no, it was an exciting program. The guys at, at Bonnaroo, the Superfly guys, were gracious in opening um, their doors to allowing me to do that and providing me the resources to do that for 10 years. That's fantastic. And I went to the first nine Bonnaroo's. <clears throat> so our paths have come close to crossing. And for about eight of those years, I was had a press pass from our local newspaper here in Longmont, Colorado. So I got to ask a lot of questions in the press tent. 
Yeah, no, it was great. We also ran a film program in the when they had the film tent around environmental documentaries. Hey, Mark, were you on the solar stage? Were you on Annabelle's stage when you did that? Annabelle had the sonic stage, and I programmed this. She programmed the sonic, and I pro- programmed the solar stage. That's so, awesome. All day, every day. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, great programming on both those stages. So it's so great that when you and I first met, it was through a Colorado production when I was working for All Phases Event Group. And I think uh, the first time that I remember hanging out with you is probably after Barack Obama's DNC speech when I was uh, managing the, the press tent there. And uh, I remember speaking and for a long time going, okay, we need to get together and, and spend more time just from having so many common interests. And at the time, I think you had, you were still at Rock the Earth. Is that right? I was still at Rock the Earth then. How did you make the segue? I remember getting an email from you about four years ago saying, I'm, I'm migrating away from Rock the Earth, and now I'm going to start moving into Canvas. You didn't know what you were going to do in the space yet, but you were de- absolutely dedicated to saying this is the next path I have. So how did that uh, transition and migration go from where you were running a, a great philanthropy over to working in the industry directly? Yeah, I had burned out. Rock the Earth had a great year of 2015, but it really crushed me in terms of burning me out. And I decided, like I said, I wanted to go back to the private sector when I looked back on my career. The private sector really was the place where I could have the most impact on a daily basis, I felt. And so I started to network with corporate social responsibility and sustainability officers here in Denver and beyond. And a couple key people within one week, one from industry and one from government, both suggested me that I look at the cannabis industry because no one was really doing corporate social responsibility in a very thoughtful, strategic, ROI-driven way. And, and sure enough, I started to poke around and talk to people in the industry. And then I started to get speaking gigs and I started to write about it. And next thing I'm in the cannabis industry and in 2019, a large MSO called me and said, we hear you're the guy to scale and strategize our corporate responsibility program. And so I went and did that. And so then I was all in on the cannabis industry after that. And what are the issues, Mark, that you see with social responsibility in the cannabis industry? For 90% of the companies in the cannabis industry, if they have corporate responsibility at all, it's usually just a philanthropy program that's bolted onto the, the company, that, the, that it's not built in a strategic way, and it's not integrated throughout the company, and therefore it doesn't really come off as authentic. So you don't have the Patagonias, the Ben & Jerry's, the new Belgian brewing companies in the cannabis industry yet. You simply don't. Now... I think this past summer with the Black Lives Matter movement really accelerated the need for social impact. And we're starting to see that in all the state licensing that's coming down the pike, whether it's New Jersey or New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, where people are starting to talk about social equity and diversity, equity and inclusion and justice. So that can definitely over overlap with corporate responsibility. But I think there's this, unfortunately, just because of where cannabis is right now in its development, there's this perception that corporate responsibility is a nice to have and not a business imperative. When the fact of the matter is, as we are seeing a very changing business climate inside cannabis as well as outside of cannabis, corporate responsibility isn't just a nice to have anymore. It's something that every company needs to have. And the publicly traded ones are going to need to report on environmental, social, and governance metrics in a very short amount of time. And so... There is an opportunity here in cannabis for us to not only create the kind of industry we would all like to see, but we're going to be forced to do it. Mark, that's really interesting to hear, especially the part about social equity. The Illinois Adult Use Program, which uh, started last January, uh, we had our first round of applications last spring. Social equity was built into the program very heavily and, in fact, constituted a significant portion of the points such that candidates without social equity certification 
didn't have a chance of getting a license. And on the one hand, while I certainly applauded Illinois' effort to be a socially equitable state and to incorporate that in, uh, what we ultimately discovered was it really wasn't social equity per se. It might have been, it depends how you define social equity. Most people here thought social equity meant a person of color or you know, a minority in that regard, when all it really meant was you either lived in a particular neighborhood for a particular period of time, uh, in other words, those neighborhoods that were designated as being overburdened victims with the war on drugs, disproportionately affected, and then, or if you yourself were a victim of the war on drugs, which in Illinois just meant that you had been arrested, not convicted, but arrested. So of course you immediately had the situation of white rich kids on the North shore who had of course been busted for marijuana somewhere along the way. And all of a sudden they were social equity. And it, it, there were consequences that I don't think, you know, were really properly thought through and that there was a rush to get the bill out the door and really take advantage of it. But what have you seen in your work with people on, and, and states and groups on social equity in terms of a, a real commitment to social equity as opposed to trying to create something where we can say, hey, look, we have social equity in our program, even if it doesn't really work out that way? Let's start with the concept, of course, we all know every state is different from state to state. And so we see all different kinds of ways that states are trying to engage in social equity. Colorado, for example, is just going back now, years after we've had recreational or adult use here in, in Colorado. What I don't see as being very helpful is where social equity started in this industry, which is we're just going to reserve a certain number of licenses for social equity applicants. But we're not going to provide them funding and we're not going to provide them with the knowledge of being able to take that license and actually execute on that license. So then we have these orphaned licenses or licenses that are then sold. And so one family or a small group of investors gets rich, which is great if they're social equity, but it doesn't really create the impact that we're looking to have in those communities that were decimated by the war on drugs. And so that's that's what we're starting to see now in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, where they're starting to talk about, let's take tax dollars and instead of building roads with them or recreational centers, or, or let's invest them back into the communities that were decimated by the war on drugs. Let's provide no interest loans for people that want to come into the industry. Let's also look at the full menu of license options. So there, there obviously are... are Transportation would be, delivery would be an example, one that's less in capital for people to get into. And so let's look at those licenses as well with regard to social equity, where there's a lower barrier of entry for folks. And so I think this is an ever-evolving issue. I'm trying to do my best, frankly, as a, as a 52-year-old white guy to listen especially since this past summer, about what people want and not presume what a social equity program should look like from where I sit. I think that's an excellent point, and that's a lesson that I learned when they uh, brought the medical program out in Illinois, and uh, I was working with a group that was going around to some of the various neighborhoods in Chicago to explain to people what the rules were. And in uh, some of the more minority, heavily populated neighborhoods, uh, we were getting a lot of pushback that we can never be part of this program. Well, what do you mean? Sure you can. No, they'll just arrest us on the way, our way home from the dispensary. No, not if you have a card. You don't understand. They'll, if we have the marijuana, we're going to get arrested. And it, it, it began to open my eyes to the fact that things we take for granted aren't necessarily the way everybody else sees them. 
And it's true, if we're going to go anywhere in this industry, we really have to do something. And, and I'm actually proud to say that in Illinois, there's a number of groups that have taken it upon themselves in a not-for-profit manner to actually provide quite a bit of mentoring and uh, education to, to low-income neighborhoods and minority neighborhoods. And I actually was able to participate in some of those programs. And it was really great to see the number of people that turned out when we're really being given an education on the way the market works and the way the industry works and, and where it could go. But then unfortunately, as we saw, since everybody went and became social equity, none of these people wound up really getting licenses because they didn't have the resources to compete with all the other people who now also qualify to social equity. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to build out a business in the most capital intense, most highly regulated in- industry in the history of the planet. But the one thing I think we can all agree on is that there are 40,000 Americans sitting in jails right now, at least for cannabis in states where cannabis is now legal, and that situation needs to be remedied. We need to have expungement, we need to have clemency, and we need to get those folks out of jail. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I think it's the great hypocrisy that you know, these people are sitting in jail watching an industry that they're you know, prosecuted for that now has sprung up as legal around them, yet they're still sitting there. And they say this is you know, completely unfair that we haven't had the opportunity. There's a timing issue for us. I also think that the oligopoly-style states, the, specifically on the East Coast, when they do an application process that only favors the best capitalized groups to even get in the application process to begin with, it's so prejudicial to not just people of color, but also people of economic means that none of them can secure licenses because they, just, they can never put their hat in the ring to start with. So if you look at that compared to you know states like California, Washington, Oregon, and uh, Colorado, those states, anyone that wanted to get a license in the early days was largely able to do, even if they didn't have a tremendous amount of capital, and if they actually were good operators, then they were able to make an impact in their market. And, uh, and I'd really like to see a lot of the other states expand their programs in a very significant and meaningful way to allow more people to come into the fold just based on economic viability. Well, you're, you're right, Robin. And one thing that's even almost worse is the, the people who can manage to scrape together enough money to get an application prepared and on file. But because that's all the resources they had, they don't have the ability to put together an application that's really going to compete with a much larger group. And so as a result, yeah, they, what do you tell these people? Oh, my God, don't go for it. Okay, you're going to go for it. You're spending this money on applications that you're not going to get back. And what we're seeing again and again, even on the little bit that we know, I mean, Illinois has been a disaster in terms of issuing licenses, so we're a bad example, but the majority of these licenses are now going to the well-funded groups. If they're not multi-state operators, they're largely large well-funded groups within the state that bring in the multi-state operator consultants to help them get it done. And it's just, it's very hard for the average person who has the resources to submit an application to be able to submit one that's on par with those others. Yeah, in the famous words of Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell and Marlo Stanfield and The Wire, the game is rigged. <laughs> and then going back to what Mark said about you don't have a Ben and Jerry's out there yet. It's difficult to do that when that program would not be tax deductible to the corporation. So along with the changes we probably will see from the federal level, if the tax deductibility of these programs comes into play, that'll help too. Well, that's that's fascinating, Jim. So what you're suggesting is that if I own a a retail dispensary, and I participate in these programs and provide value in a social equity way, I may not be able to write that off because it's an ordinary business deduction that's prohibited by 280E. That's correct. And your wages that were spent in that area, if you let your people go into these areas and promote these programs, then you're paying them on payroll. Those wages are not deductible. 
So Mark, I know that away from just uh, ESG right now, environmentalism has always been a huge focus of everything you've done professionally. Where can the industry improve on environmental impact? And what are you seeing? I always think about from the standpoint of I sold tons of light bulbs in my hydro stores when I owned the, the stores in Colorado, and I tried to start a bulb recycling program because every HID bulb that you know Hordelux produced or any other manufacturer produced has a small amount of heavy metals in it. And those ultimately end up in the water supply if they're not disposed of properly. And most growers didn't have a place to do it. So I tried to institute a policy of everyone tacking on an extra five bucks on a bulb and then making sure there's a return policy. None of the other shops wanted to go for it. None of the big suppliers wanted to go for it. And I watched hundreds of thousands of bulbs on an annual basis essentially end up in landfills. That's just one small thing that for an industry that it's funny that we grow green, but we're not a green industry. How do we get better? And how do we improve from what you've seen? I think as we push towards federal legalization, I think, or after federal legalization happens, I think some of these issues will go away because you're going to start to see cultivation in climates where people aren't just growing in warehouses anymore. Because we know here in Colorado, one of the largest um, users of energy at this point in Colorado are the grow houses, the warehouse grow houses. And so energy usage is one of the probably largest issues for the cannabis industry in places like Oregon, Washington, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, here in Colorado. So there's energy. There are some great groups out there that are working to slay that beast. The Resource Innovation Institute out of the Pacific Northwest is great. They've got an energy calculator that works with the cannabis industry. There's other sustainability consultants out there consulting cannabis companies on the reduction of energy usage because it's not just lighting. It's HVAC, it's humidity control. When you have an indoor grow, it's a lot of things. Water usage in water-sensitive areas like Arizona is another issue. But again, I think a lot of the cultivation issues will start to settle in the coming years. Pesticides, states have learned from, the new states coming online have learned from the, the first mover states like Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, about pesticides. And the testing, as you know, the, the testing requirements have gotten much, much more rigorous with every state that's coming online. So pesticides, while being a big issue, I think are also diminishing as people are concerned about the health and safety. And again, once we have EPA involved, game's over for using pesticides on smokable products. And then the last issue, which is the big consumer-facing issue, and that's packaging. It's the obvious issue. You walk into a, a dispensary, you leave Sometimes you're required to have an exit bag. Sometimes your flour is put into a childproof container that's put into another childproof container that's put into an exit bag. It's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. There's great packaging solutions out there coming on board. But until we have a circular economy, but this goes for the entire consumer packaged goods industry, until we have a circular economy and we stop drilling oil to make plastic and we start harvesting out of the ocean and we start putting it back into use and reuse again, the packaging issue isn't going to go away. Now, thankfully, the cannabis industry can start to follow the lead of other companies in consumer packaged goods like Unilever and the beverage industry as to what they are doing with regard to a circular economy and packaging. So we're not just trashing the planet with all of our you know, cannabis trash. So that's a great segue to, to lead us into our Grateful Dead discussion today. It wasn't by accident that we invited you onto the show on this date, because I think as you're aware, 48 years ago yesterday, we're recording this on February 9th, we got the release of the first China Doll, the first Here Comes Sunshine, the first Loose Lucy, the first Row Jimmy, the first They Love Each Other, the first Wave That Flag, which ultimately turned into U.S. Blues, as we all know. And most importantly, I think for a lot of Grateful Dead fans, we got the first eyes of the world. All this happened at the Roscoe Maples Pavilion at Stanford, California on February 9th, 1972. 
And when I approached you about coming on the show, I said, you know, what song on the Grateful Dead's repertoire really speaks to you as being an environmental song? And I expected you to say, we can run. I, I didn't think that you'd come back with eyes. And you came back and said, by far and away, it's eyes of the world. And I said, fantastic. Let's talk about some of our favorite versions of eyes and some of our the reasons why it resonates as an environmentalist. So hit us. Let's talk eyes of the world. Yeah, we can run's a great literal environmental song. It really is. But eyes of the world as someone who was heavily influenced by the Grateful Dead and probably changed my career trajectory because of the Grateful Dead, Eyes of the World is almost a command. And, and as the band is very apolitical, and when they did get involved in issues, it was environmental issues. When Jerry and Bobby spoke to Congress about old growth forests, when Bobby worked on his book with his sister, it was about the oceans. Environmentalism has always been an underlying uh, theme in the Grateful Dead community. The imagery on the screens in the 90s were often environmental images. And Eyes of the World was just one of those songs that just, it just spoke to me. It just commanded me to wake up and find that me and everyone else hearing the song were the eyes of the world. And that can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. But for the environmentalist in me, that's, that's what spoke to me. I think the quintessential version of the song is the version that they put on Without a Net with Branford from Nassau. Yeah, 329.90. Yeah, that, that version is just so amazing. But as we were preparing for this show, I started to listen to other versions that really... I had heard it at my first show at Three River Stadium in 90. I was at that show. Yeah, it was an interesting show because it was, a, instead of an estimated eyes, it was an eyes estimated, which I didn't realize it at the time how unusual that was, but it was. They only started doing it at that Brantford show. 329.90 was the first time they mixed it up and they did the, uh, the, the eyes estimated. Yeah. So then they started playing that combo backwards for the rest of that tour and the rest of that summer. Yeah. The ones that really have caught my attention, though, as I've been uh, catching up for this show, there were two. The, the Lincoln uh, 73 one and the, the Boston 73, the November 30th 73. It's 19 minutes. At the 12-minute mark, there's just some slipknot hints in there. It, it's a slow version. The fast versions from the early 80s are interesting. It's I don't know... I don't even want to suspect what the band was on. They're just so much faster than some of the other versions. And then there's versions like Rochester from 77 where Phil is just going off. So I think Eyes of the World is one of those songs that they could plug into any show and then any dyed-in-the-wool deadhead will love that song. It just soars every single time. It's always been one of my favorites. <clears throat> and one of my favorite stories is... An Eyes of the World that was performed in August of 1987 in Telluride, Colorado. And the sheriff's department was on horseback and they were trotting around the perimeter of the park where the stage was set up and the concert was happening and uh, listening to Eyes of the World. And the, it seemed to me like the tails of the horses were a mile long. <laughs> How about you, Larry? You have any favorite versions? Look. I've never met anyone who doesn't love Eyes of the World, okay? Everybody doesn't like something, but nobody doesn't like Eyes of the World, to borrow an old advertising phrase. But for me, it's like one of those pillars upon which the entire Garcia Foundation is based. It's not as, it doesn't get as much attention as Scarlet Begonia's or some of his certainly Morning Dew or things like that. But it's just one of those tunes. It doesn't matter where or when. And, and I absolutely agree with Mark that no matter how much I thought I knew the tune and how much I loved the tune, when I heard it on Without a Net, that totally changed everything for me. In fact, it, it, this was that came out not long after Jerry came back from his, his 89 illness. And I had already lived through the first illness in 86, and now the illness in 89. And it was hard to keep getting you know back on the wagon. I was working and doing everything to get back out there at all the shows. I heard this show, 
And I heard that and I was like, we're going. And next thing you know, we were off to Arizona and caught some shows out there. But it's just such a tremendous version of it. And to me, one of the things that I really take away from it is where the hell was the saxophonist in the Grateful Dead lineup all of these years? Brantford is amazing, but you see what a saxophone can do. It's such a natural fit right in with every and and but i guess again part of that is just branford right think about it he's up there he's never played with them before and what i love about the song is for about the first three minutes he's just do you know he's not really taking a position yet he's just feeling it out and then somewhere in there he just dives in and once he does he integrates in jerry integrates him in and it's they've been doing it together all of their lives which i guess is what we're really looking for when we're looking for this type of spontaneity that that takes us to dead shows so for me I think that's far and away the best one I ever saw or heard. Before that, and it's funny you mentioned those 73 shows, my favorite is one of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead shows that I never saw but had a tape of that I listened to until it, it, it killed itself. February 15th, 1973 from Madison. And that is a tremendous show. It had a great Here Comes Sunshine. It has the a tremendous version of the only Donna song I ever liked, You Ain't Woman Enough for Me. And, and it's got a killer 18, almost 19-minute dark star on there that's, excuse me, eyes, that comes out of a dark star and into a China doll. And it's just such an amazing 45-minute stretch of music that you almost lose track of the fact that the eyes is in there until you realize it's eyes and, and you have to really focus on it a little bit more. On the fast side, in April 17th, 84, I saw them at the Niagara Civic Center. And it was like a, it was a throwaway show. It was my senior year, second semester. And we had already traveled everywhere. We had driven out to Hampton to see them, and we had driven all through upstate New York to see them. And then they did the show at Niagara, and two other guys and I got in a car, literally drove through Canada, straight over there, got to the show. And it was it was a great show. The second set was Help, Slip, Frank. Women are smarter, and they played it and played it, and it certainly sounded like they were going into drums until at the last minute, Jerry just says, and he dives into this eyes of the world. They were like on a timer. They, I've never heard, they, they played this song so fast, and at the time it seemed so unusual, and I never really heard it quite that fast again, but that night it actually fit in. They were just, we're going to squeeze this in before drums, I want to get it in, I'm getting it in, and they did, and that, that was great. And then probably if you're just, if you're a new listener and you're looking for a classic, Dick's Pick Six, which is uh, an 83 show from Hartford, which uh, I was not at, but it was significant because in that run, not that night on the Dick's Picks, but the other night they played St. Stephen, which was the second time they played it after they broke it out in the uh, garden a week or two earlier, a show that I was at when they broke it out for the first time in five years. But just to show you how great this is, that's got the awesome Scarlet Fire Estimated Eyes, which, yes, Eyes Estimated was fun too. Scarlet Fire Estimated Eyes, China Writer Estimated Eyes, those are just when you, when you knew they were going into that, that, that's 45 minutes of here comes fantastic music my way, and they never disappointed. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to actually see the Branford Eyes in 329.90. In, in that show, the intent was only to bring Branford out at the end of the first set to play the bird song. And he ended right. up meshing so well with the band that they said, you know, come back out and sit in with us for the rest of the second set. And I think what the takeaway from that is, is not just how amazing and unbelievable it was that he came out there sight unseen and, and played it the way he did. But literally from that point forward, when Vince Welnick joined the band, he actually changed the way he uh, played keyboards to mimic a lot of the sounds that Branford put into that eyes. So you can listen to a lot of things that Branford did on that eyes for the first time that Vince then continued to play for the next five years. The other one that from that era that I think just always blows me away is the 331-91 from Greensboro Coliseum. And that one's a Bruce Hornsby eyes and the interplay between Garcia and Hornsby. It's a long intro. Then they play the first verse and the, the jam between the first verse and the second verse is probably... 
eight to ten minutes long, and the interplay on the on the piano between the piano and the guitar riffing back and forth is just so amazing. So anyone that hasn't heard that one, it's a twenty three minute and third twenty three minute forty one second I think eyes. It's like definitely the longest one I can think of on, on record, but just simply an incredible slow drawn out, really mellow but really fun back and forth. Excellent. Yeah, it's there's just so much about that too. It's so great that you could really just talk about it from the first time I ever even remember hearing the song being played live was at a concert in Ann Arbor in 1980 or 81 by a, a dead cover band out of Cleveland called Ouroboros or Ouroboros or however they pronounced their name at the time. And we were in the Michigan Union and they started to play this song and a whole group of us were dancing and I turned to somebody and I said, God, this song sounds really familiar. What song is this? Oh, this is Eyes of the World. And from that point on, I was like, Okay, now I know what it is. I'm locked in. I'm happy with this. And yeah, it just becomes one of those songs you have to hear. Hey, sometimes we ride on your horses. That's yeah, true, sir. Sometimes we walk along. My, uh, my claim to fame with that song, Jim, is uh, in college, there was a house band that used to play at, at the house parties we were at all the time. And one night, one of the guys was so banged up that he actually couldn't remember the third verse to the song when they were playing Eyes. And so the, they looked around the crowd like, does anyone know it? So I got up and just grabbed the mic and sang the third verse. And, uh, and after that, whenever they played it, shows those out, they'd invite me up and say, uh, to let me sing Eyes. So that was the, uh, the one song that I got to sing in college anytime that this particular band was in the house. Dissecting the lyrics uh, in um, the Grateful Dead Lyrics Annotated, one of my favorite books, it says that the, there comes a Redeemer, and that is a reference potentially, everybody has their own interpretation, to Jesus Christ, and the wagon loaded with clay is the Catholic Church or religion in general i've never heard that i why not i that could be it doesn't you know look hunter was deep enough and certainly in tune with those elements of life that he could have very easily intended those to be what he was talking about but they're good lyrics those are the fun kind of lyrics to dissect follows a wagon behind him that's loaded with clay and you're like what the hell is that nah, never mind who cares it's just a great song i'm having a good time keep playing yes for our listeners out there if you ever see the Grateful Dead lyrics annotated in a bookshop or used bookshop. Be sure to grab it. It's a wealth of information. So what else is happening in Grateful Dead world? I know we got uh, a new release. You want to talk about that for a minute, Larry? Yes. The Dead have now released Dave's Picks, Volume 37. And with this release of Volume 37, they have surpassed Dick's Picks, which stopped at 36. Dave is alive and well and rolling right along. And uh, for Dick's Picks uh, 37... What's really fun is they return to a familiar scene for them, which is uh, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And it always makes me chuckle because it's a tiny little college that unless somebody who goes there or something like that, you may never have heard of it. But yet for some reason, it's a place that to which the dead gravitated. And I want to say that it's Dave's Picks 4 or 5, one of the original ones they released. That's, I think, a 1973 show from the College of William and Mary. And yeah, they do it here. Now, Mark, for you, you're a Pittsburgh guy, you said, the this show is concise enough that they have to add on extra. They add on a good chunk from a few nights later at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. Now, that would have been back in 1978, so I don't know whether that's a show you would have necessarily made it to or not, but I remember the old Civic Arena because that's, I remember, where the Penguins used to play originally. I grew up a big blues fan in St. Louis and knew all the second six, as they were called, who joined the original six and Pittsburgh was one of those teams, and it was always you know, back before they got whatever, all those great players that they've had over the years. But it was a lot of fun back then. So, yeah, I've never seen a bad show in Pittsburgh. Of course, I've only seen one show, but it was that show you're talking, Three Rivers Stadium, right? 
Yeah, 1990. But they also played Three Rivers again in 95, and then there were all the Civic Arena shows, of course. I'm actually not from Pittsburgh, although I lived in Pittsburgh for seven years. But the, the 90 show, didn't they have Crosby, Stills open for them? Yep. They Crosby, Stills, Nash open for them. There was yep. a giant hot air balloon. In 95. In 95, they had Rusted Root. That was the rain show. Yeah. It was the rain show. It was the second set that opened with rain. It looks like rain. Four Selma on the rain. There's four rain tunes in a row going into drums. With the rain pouring it was down. Pouring. <laughs> it was absolutely insane torrential downpours. Nuts. It's nice to know that every now and then they're at least in touch with what's going on around them. Back to uh, Days Picks 37. I listened to it all the way through a couple of times, and it's just a great show. That Jerry does his virtuoso guitar on the first song on Help, or no, it'd be Half Step. Yep. And. I believe it's the Wolf guitar, is it not, Larry? It is. And boy, the, the sound is phenomenal. I have a nice sound system, which helps, but boy, you know, and people, what I was thinking is um, people always talk about 1977 as being such a great year, and I'm listening to this show, and I'm thinking, 78 well, wasn't bad either. No, we know, we've <laughs> talked about that. 78 is a great year, and it's a great half step, but Rob and Dan, if you're listening, and Jim too, as, we, as we're always looking to come up with our list of topics to talk about, one of the topics we're going to have to talk about is songs they played and then stopped playing. And for me, one of the songs at the top of that list is Passenger. And that's the second song on the, from this show. And I love Passenger. And from the time I started seeing them in mid-1982, I don't think they ever played it once from that point until the end. It was, an old, it was a Phil Lesh tune. Bobby sang a lot of it. Maybe when they didn't have Don in the band anymore, I don't know. But I love yeah, Passenger. The Brent's first show, they opened the uh, the first set with it. Oh, you're right. That's true. They did first show, first yeah. set. You're absolutely right. That's a great call. But uh, somewhere along the way, early on, it it fell out of favor and it dropped off the list. Yeah, but I do love that era's half steps were were unbelievable though. I think Jim spelled on if, another one from that era, transitioning between seventy seven and seventy eight, is the Broom County Arena from eleven sixteen or eleven six seventy seven. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, that step jack straw opener, and that thing is just. Barn burner. That's that's twenty straight minutes of. Fun. That's what I love about nineteen seventy eight, especially this show, because when you pick it up and you look at the set list, it's a very standard set list in terms of variety of songs that they play. But this is one of those shows that you fall in love with because of how they play the songs, rather than what they're playing. And for me, I'm just as happy to come out of a show with what I would consider to be a, a more pedestrian set list, well played, than there's sometimes bumbled efforts to reach a little bit beyond where they might truly be comfortable going. One interesting thing about the first set is the weather report suite is not the set ender. Well, it's not weather. It's just let it grow, right? They, right. Don't, they don't do the full weather. They just do. Yeah, that doesn't that. Oh, no, deal closes the set. They play that into deal. Yep. 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 Which yep. deal is a pretty standard set closer, but that's like putting two standard set closers back to back. So that's that's two for the price of one. You can't beat that. That's great. And then. When you hear the Let It Grow, you're pretty sure that's over. A hundred percent. So you get a little bonus song. And then what I love is it's a second set Bertha opener. And as much as I think of it as a show opener, there's so many other places that it popped in. That 83 show in New York when they played St. Stephen, they actually played Bertha. I want to say they played Bertha into the drums. But they played it before the drums for sure. Never in a place where I'd never heard it before. Uh, It was just one of those kind of nights. But Jerry would just toss it around from time to time. We'll talk about that sometime too. Yes, because I see we're coming towards the end of our time slot, so I don't know if anybody has anything they want to squeeze in here towards the end of the show here. Before we sign off, just wanted to know if uh, you had any parting words or if there's anything that you're doing that you might want people to know about if they want to follow you or anything like that. Oh, thank you. So I've got a couple things going on. One, 
I've been consulting companies on corporate responsibility and environmental social and governance in the cannabis space, mainly under the moniker Needle, N-E-E-D-L-E, consultants.com. And uh, I also have my own podcast called A Better World Podcast. It's not a cannabis podcast. It's more of a conscious business podcast, although I do disproportionately favor cannabis stories. And so two seasons are up of that. Interview some great people from the world of conscious business and the arts, a number of them from cannabis, and look for season three coming later this year. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, of course, for being here today. It's always fun. Before we sign off, let me kick back over to Rob Hunt for one moment. Yeah, amazing having Mark on the show. Mark, it's so good to see you and so good to hear you. Next week, we're being joined by our good buddy, Jeremy Bergstein, who's run a a pretty big marketing firm out of New York called The Science Project and has since gotten involved in the Canvas space as well. And much the way we talked about the Roscoe Pavilion show today, next week marks the 50th anniversary of the legendary six-night run at the Porchester Capitol Theater, which saw us get six new songs out of The Grateful Dead, including Greatest Story and Loser and Bertha and uh, several others. And it was the the first time I think that the band came back without Mickey Hart after Lenny Hart uh, had ripped off the band. So it was back to the one drummer setup. So it was a five five man band for that run. But it was the mark of a new era for The Grateful Dead and, and one that I think that anyone that's listened to knows just how impactful and how important those uh, that six-night run was for the, the b- growth of the band. I think you're absolutely right. And you say Lenny Hart, and I jumped, because one of these days we're going to have to have a conversation and settle for once and for all who the song He's Gone is really about. It's it's about Lenny Hart, with a, a 100%, the catharsis of letting it go. Of course it is. And everybody wants to say it was about Pigpen. It's not about Pigpen. No, it's a Lenny Hart song, 100%. Yep, Brad in a train ditch. Yeah. Yeah, better, but I know him. All right, I'm going to look in my Grateful Dead lyrics annotated book for next week. I already did. It tells the story. You'll see it. Yeah. Awesome. All right, at least for me. Thanks so much, Mark, for coming. And another great show, Larry and Jim. Yes, Thank- the expanded uh, DJ format is very nice. It broadens the scope of what we can talk about. So very good. All right, I'm going to sign us off then. Yes, sir. Everybody, this is Jim Marty saying goodbye till next week from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Larry? Thank you, Jim. Larry Mishkin saying goodbye. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Over and out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.